Well, question of the hour. How well do you handle change? There's a certain middle-aged man that went to his follow-up doctor's visit after having his blood work. He was sitting in the office, and the doctor came in. doctor had a not-so-happy look on his face, and he said, I'm sorry, sir, I've got some bad news for you. Unless some major changes are made, I don't think you're going to survive another month. Your blood pressure is through the roof. Your cholesterol's higher than about any patient I've ever seen. And it's pretty clear from what you told me in your last visit that you're completely stressed out about your finances. So if you want to survive this month, you're going to have to go home and talk to your wife, and the two of you are going to have to make some serious changes. So what I want you to do is right after this appointment, I want you to go home and have a chat with your wife, and I want, her to, want you to tell her, honey, you've got to make some changes. Doctor says you need to be making me two healthy meals every single day. You need to be making sure that you lower my stress level by sticking to the budget we've created. And he wants you to lighten my load around the house by doing more your share of the chores. And so the doctor passes this on to him. He says, well, doctor, you know, in all honesty, I don't think my wife's going to receive that real well. Would you mind calling her and telling her that for me? The doctor says, sure, no problem. So the man checks out at the doctor's office. About 45 minutes later, he's walking through the front door of his house, and he hears his wife bawling. She's over in the kitchen on the kitchen table just sobbing and sobbing. And he goes up to her and says, honey, honey, what's wrong? Did the doctor call you? She says, yeah, he called me. Well, what on earth did he say? Well, he said that you're not going to live another month. There was a woman that didn't like change very much. I came across this quote last week from a guy I've never heard of. (laughs) The Duke of Cambridge in the late 1800s evidently is famous for saying this. Any change at any time for any reason is to be deplored. (laughs) I know nothing about the Duke of Cambridge, uh, but I'm pretty sure that was a dude that didn't like change. Didn't like change very much. And I don't know (laughs) about you. But I sometimes struggle with it as well. I want you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 27, picking up where we left off last week as we dive into today's message, which is reluctant to change. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Now, last Sunday, as we studied verses 17 through 26 together, we saw that the opposition to Jesus' ministry was rising. Up until verse 17 of Luke chapter 5, Jesus' supporters were many, and his naysayers and critics were very few, except in his hometown of Nazareth. But in verse 17 there in chapter 5, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come onto the scene for the first time here in the book of Luke. And from the get-go, it's pretty clear that these Pharisees and teachers of the law were naysaying legalists that didn't show up with open minds. Matthew Henry describes their presence really well as he writes, They sat by as persons unconcerned, as if the word of Christ were nothing to them. They sat by as spectators, as censors, as spies to pick up something on which to ground a reproach or accusation. The Pharisees and teachers of the law didn't like Jesus telling the paralyzed man in verse 20 that his sins were forgiven. 
They didn't think Jesus had the authority to forgive sins, but they were left with some egg on their faces when Jesus, just second, late, seconds later, healed the man's legs. So for the first time in years, he was able to stand and walk out of the home by himself. Well, that's where we'll pick up in verse 27 of Luke 5. But before we read the passage together, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given us to study your word. And Father, we don't believe it's an accident that you have us in this passage today. Lord, we believe that you are going to speak to us with your living word as we dive into it over these next few minutes together. And Lord, I'm I'm excited as I was just praying during communion time. Lord, I pray that uh, you would prepare us for situations that we're going to encounter this week, whether it's at work or at Target uh, or wherever it may be, oh God, prepare us. So as you have chosen this passage for us to study today, we can't help but think, Lord, that some of what we're going to learn today in this passage, you want us to apply in our homes or in our workplaces or in our school tomorrow or Tuesday or Wednesday or at some point this week. So, Lord, help us to approach your word with open ears and open minds and hearts so you can prepare us for those divine appointments that you have in mind for us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. Say amen if you're there. Here we go. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and, and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often uh, fast and pray, and, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but uh, your disciples go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and sews it on an old one. If he does, he will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for he says... The old is better. The old is better. Well, may God bless us as we study his word today. Here in these 13 verses, Jesus' critics voice two complaints about Jesus and the way he is doing things and the way that he is teaching and the way that he is living. And the first of those two complaints is packaged in a question. Does that sound a little familiar at all? Sometimes in our homes... When one of our family members is complaining, they will nicely package that complaint in a seemingly innocent-sounding question. 
Ladies, you're kind of familiar with this, aren't you? Husbands, you're kind of familiar with this. Uh, uh, Some free marriage advice for the married couples in the room today. Husbands, if you come out of the closet in the morning after having gotten dressed, and your wife looks at you and says, are you going to wear that today? Word to the wise, she's really not asking, are you going to wear that today? What she is really meaning by that question is, you moron with no fashion sense whatsoever, you better get back into that closet and put on something different. Ladies, when your husband is running late for an appointment and he asks you, are you ready yet? He's really not asking, are you ready yet? What he's really saying is, if you're not in this car in 30 seconds, I'm leaving without you. Sometimes we package these complaints in a nice little question, and that's kind of what the Pharisees do with the first one. The second complaint they have, a little bit further down, uh, in essence is an unspoken question, but it's not strictly speaking one. But uh, these Pharisees come with these two questions, and as we look at these 13 verses today, those two questions, those two complaints, I should say, of the Pharisees uh, give us a nice two-point outline for this passage. And, And so we'll look at each of these complaints of the Pharisees today and the context within which these complaints are voiced. And so God is going to speak to us as we address these complaints of the Pharisees and look at how Jesus answers them. In verses 27 through 32, uh, those verses center around complaint number one. Verses 33 through 39 center around complaint uh, number two. And so let's look, first of all, at their first complaint that we find in verses 27 uh, through 32. Their first complaint basically could be paraphrased this way. Why, Jesus, do you fellowship with the scum of the earth? Why do you fellowship with the scum of the earth? Their complaint is in verse 30. Strictly, it's why do you fellowship with the, well, the way they say it here in in verse 30. uh, If I move past that paraphrase is why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. Now, notice that they don't go to Jesus directly with this question, with this complaint. They go to Jesus' disciples. Now, why on earth did they have this complaint? Well, the context is provided in verse 27. Notice in verse 27, it says, After this, Jesus went out, and he saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth, and he said, Follow me. So at some point after Jesus had healed that paralyzed man there in that house, remember last week, uh, they tore a hole in the roof, these four friends of the paralyzed man, and they had him on his mat, and they tied ropes to each of the four corners of his mat, and they lowered him down through the roof right in front of Jesus. Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven, and, and then proceeded to heal the man's leg. So at some point after this, Jesus leaves the home, and we don't know if it's the same day, maybe the next day, maybe a week later, we can't be certain, but at some point after healing this man with the paralyzed legs, Jesus was out in the town and he comes across this man named Levi in his tax collector booth. And he says to Levi, follow me. That's it. Two words, follow me. Verse 28, Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Now, if we're going to understand why the Pharisees got so upset with Jesus a few verses down, 
we have to understand a little bit more about tax collectors and more specifically a booth-sitting tax collectors in Jesus' day. And Chuck Swindoll in his commentary, I think, does a marvelous job explaining this. And he says it's shorter and sweeter than I can. So I'm going to read what he says about tax uh, collectors that sat at booths in Jesus' day. Uh, Swindoll writes, The Greek term telones, used here in verse 17, refers to a particular kind of tax collector strongly associated with corruption. To become a telones, one had to purchase a franchise from a Roman government official. Rome set collection quotas for each month, but a telones could use government authority to extort as much as he wanted from the people. The tax money went to Rome. The surplus went into the tax collector's pocket. To pay for a franchise, a Jew may have sold off land, which seems only reasonable from a Gentile point of view. But Jews drew much of their identity from owning a parcel of the promised land. So to sell off one's portion of the promised land given to Abraham was akin to selling one's birthright for a bowl of soup. Jews considered this worse than treason. Tax collectors had betrayed their people. They had rejected their heritage and despised their temple and renounced their God. Tax collectors had sold themselves to foreigners, which put them on the same level as shameless harlots. I read those words, and it's like my eyes were open. I'd heard all my life about how tax collectors were despised by the Jews, but I didn't know the half of it. And that gave me a much better understanding as to why they were so despised. Why they were so despised, I didn't realize how many taxes either that the Jewish people had to pay in Jesus' day. Here's just a few of those taxes they had to pay. Adults in Israel had to pay the poll tax. They also had to pay a ground tax. And they had to pay an income tax. Ever heard of that one? Okay, they had to pay all three of those. And just like our favorite politicians in Sacramento... When the politicians in Rome wanted to levy a new tax against their subjects and wanted it to sound nicer, they wouldn't use the word tax. They would change it. Many of you realize that as you're voting on Tuesday, one of the propositions on the ballot is a voter initiative, Prop 6. Prop 6 was put on the ballot because our wonderful leaders in Sacramento decided our people in California won't like us if we add a gas tax or we add another registration tax, so we will call these fees. We're going to add a fee to the registration, another fee to the price at the pump. And so Prop 6 is one example of how that is trying to be battled with today in our own state. And so I usually don't say how I'm going to vote, but I'm all for Prop 6. Because our government has plenty of money in the coffers designated for roads and bridge and infrastructure repair that are not being used for that, that are being swiped and spent on other things. And so Prop 6, in essence, is unnecessary because they should spend what they were supposed to spend in the first place on what they were supposed to spend it on. And that comes from a good source, the vice chairman of the California Finance Committee, Jay Obernolte, our assemblyman. So... We hear it on a good source that Sacramento is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Here in Rome, it was much the same thing. They would levy these taxes on the people of Israel, and at times they would change the names. And so catch this. They didn't always call them taxes. In their day, they called them fees. 
the Jewish people had to pay uh, duties, they called them sometimes too, and they had to pay these fees or these duties for using roads, for using harbors, for using even markets. Can you imagine having to pay a tax for using a market? But that's what was going on in Israel. Catch this. If you owned an ox that pulled your cart, they charged you a duty on the ox, and they charged you a duty on your cart, and they charged you a duty on each of the four wheels that were on that cart. So this is the context within which these Jewish people are viewing their tax collectors. These are not people they like very much because these were back-breaking taxes. And as many like Levi here, who had his own franchise and had the authority from Rome to pad the amount that he would charge those that were paying taxes, these guys were especially despised because not only were they paying the legitimate backbreaking taxes, they were padding the tax collector's wallet on top of that because of their own greed. So, these Jewish people in Jesus' day, they believed that tax collectors were basically the scum of the earth. They believed that tax collectors were morally on the same level as prostitutes, as thieves, and as murderers. They made our 21st century IRS agents look like Boy Scouts. They really did. They were considered to be the scum of the earth, and hence they were barred from every synagogue in Israel. If you were a 100% Jewish in your ethnic origin, in your ethnic makeup, and, and you had grown up going to synagogue every single Sabbath day, but you became a tax collector, you were immediately excommunicated from every synagogue in Israel. So Jesus goes up to this scum of the earth tax collector, and he says simply, follow me. And Levi responds by leaving everything and following Jesus. By the way, Levi in the New Testament goes by another name. You know what it is? Matthew, who went on to write the first book in our New Testament. And going on to write the first book in our New Testament began with two simple words spoken by Jesus. Follow me. If Jesus speaks to you today and says, follow me, there's no telling how far you can go. As you stay hot on his heels. So he calls to Levi, follow me. Well, this is an amazing thing that is said next. In verse 11, we read earlier in the chapter when Jesus had called to Peter and James and John, and most likely Andrew was with them at the time. Jesus said to them, as they were out there fishing and had the largest catch of fish they had ever had, remember in verse 11, Jesus said, or verse 10, he said, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And verse 11, it says, they pulled their nets on shore, left everything, and followed him. And similarly here, Levi leaves everything and follows him. We read that here in verse 28. But I think Levi had more at stake than Peter, Andrew, James, and John did. Because you think about that, they owned their own fishing business. And if things didn't work out with Jesus, they could always come back and start back up their fishing business, right? But in those days, 
If you were a booth-sitting tax collector who had purchased your own franchise, you were one of the proud and the few in the eyes of Rome who had demonstrated the ability to be able to handle your own tax station. And if you left that tax station suddenly without notice, without Rome's permission, you would never get that booth back. So when Peter, Andrew, James, and John left their jobs, there was a chance if it didn't work out, they could return. When Levi, it says, left everything and followed Jesus, he was leaving it for good. He was basically burning the ships. There was no turning back for Levi. And it's clear in verse 29 that he was thrilled about it. Levi threw a large banquet at his house. In Jesus' honor, Levi invited all of his friends and, and co-workers. It was a huge party. All his friends, all his co-workers were there. There was just one small problem. All of his friends and co-workers were the scum of the earth. It, it would be similar to you and I throwing a huge bash. And the only ones we invite are, are members of MS-13 and convicted sex offenders. Uh, we bring them all in. That's all that's at the party. And that's what was going on at Levi's house that night. All his friends and co-workers were there. And when the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who were still keeping a close eye on Jesus, saw that party and saw Jesus at that party and saw Jesus' disciples at that party, they were beside themselves. And they just start complaining and criticizing out the kazoo. Verse 30, Jesus' critics pulled a few of Jesus' disciples aside and asked them the question, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Well, I imagine that some of Jesus' disciples looked like a deer in the headlights. They hadn't been following Jesus very long, and they didn't want to say something dumb. They didn't want to give the wrong answer, so I'm guessing they were kind of hemming and hawing. And Jesus either had overheard the Pharisees' questions, or just like earlier in the chapter, he was reading their minds. And so Jesus intervenes and answers the question for them. Jesus saved the day. Verse 31, he answers them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Isn't that good? Isn't that one of those verses you, you hear in him? Mm, that's my Savior right there. You tell him, Jesus. If we were in the disciples' shoes, we might have been doing this. Uh, you tell him, Jesus. You tell him. Because he just says it so well. How might we have answered that question? I don't know. I may not have answered it very well, but I'm so glad that Jesus intervened and answered it for his followers. In Luke's gospel account, we see this reoccurring theme of Jesus prioritizing spiritually sick people. Throughout the book of Luke, we find him touching and healing the lepers and, and opening the eyes of the blind and healing the legs of those who are paralyzed and even at times raising the dead. Jesus prioritized spiritually sick people as well. Spiritually sick people who needed his grace and needed his mercy. So on this particular night here in Luke chapter 5, Jesus, the world's greatest spiritual doctor, he didn't waste his time having dinner with those who were already saved. He didn't waste his time having dinner with those who were already spiritually healthy and on their way to heaven. He had dinner with those who were dealing with stage 4 spiritual cancer and desperately needed the salvation that only he could give. 
desperately needed him to throw them a lifeline so they wouldn't be continuing to be headed straight for hell. Jesus wasn't worried about how it looked. He wasn't worried about being mischaracterized. What he was worried about was Levi's friend's salvation. He was worried about their salvation. And he spent whatever time necessary to lead them to repentance and forgiveness of sin. Well, Jesus' answer is marvelous. But Jesus' critics weren't done with their complaints. Their second complaint we find in the next verse, verse 33, which I think we could paraphrase this way. Complaint number two, Jesus, why are your followers chowing down while the rest of us are fasting? It's a good question, I suppose. Good question, I suppose. His historians tell us that in Jesus' day, Pharisees fasted two times every week. They fasted on Monday and they fasted on Thursday every single week. On Monday from sunup to sundown, they fasted. On Thursday from sunup to sundown, they fasted. So why are they complaining to Jesus? Notice this time they don't go to his disciples. This time they, this time they go right to him with their complaint. And so what I'm guessing happened here is this party that Levi threw was on a, a, a Monday or on a Thursday. So the Pharisees, from their standpoint, are thinking, you know, it would be bad enough for Jesus to be having this social hour, this meal in the house of the scum of the earth with all of his friends who are the scum of the earth. It would be bad enough to be doing that on a Sunday, on a Tuesday, or on a Wednesday. But it's adding insult to injury that he's doing this on a day when all of us self-respecting rabbis are fasting. How can you be throwing a party and gorging yourself and your disciples gorging themselves with all that good-looking food while the spiritual folks, us, are fasting? And so they weren't too happy with Jesus. If that's the case, that it was a Monday or a Thursday, they were particularly upset with Jesus. Well, they even throw John the Baptist under the bus on this one. Yeah, even John the Baptist's disciples fast on Mondays and Thursdays. How come yours don't do it, Jesus? How come? Are you a glutton? Are you a drunkard? How come you don't do it, Jesus? In response to their complaint, Jesus shares three simple illustrations from everyday life that help explain why his disciples don't fast and why he doesn't follow all the Pharisees' silly little rules. Example number one we find in verses 34 and 35. And it's the example of the wedding feast. This is kind of interesting. In those days in Israel, when someone got married, they didn't have their wedding ceremony and then head off the next day on a honeymoon for a week or two weeks. In Jesus' day, this is how it worked. You would have your wedding ceremony, and then over the next week, you would throw a huge party at your house, and it would be like a a large uh, open house for all your family and friends. So they would be officially married, but then they stayed home for at least a week while all their family and friends celebrated them for, with them for seven days. And so this wonderful feast would be celebrated. And so Jesus looks at this example and says, think of a wedding feast. When the bride and groom have just exchanged their vows and they're now happily married, the family and friends aren't going to fast all week long. They're partying with the bride and groom. They're eating good food. 
They're drinking good wine. They're celebrating this wonderful occasion in their family that these two have come together as husband and wife. And Jesus says, similarly, I'm like the bridegroom. And my disciples are going to continue to celebrate because when Jesus is walking this earth, it's closer to being a wedding than it is to being a funeral, isn't it? Some people look at church and they say, man, it's like a funeral dirge. Have they been to church recently? Church shouldn't be like a funeral dirge. It's closer to being a wedding feast because we get to celebrate salvation in Jesus Christ. We get to celebrate that we've been forgiven. Over the years, every once in a while, I talk about one of these days I might get hit by a Mack truck and one of you is going to have to come up here and preach for me the next week. One of these days I might get hit by that Mack truck. Someone asked me the other week, how come it's not a Peterbilt? I don't know. But one of these days when my life comes to an end, I know where I'm going. I'm going to celebrate with Jesus in heaven and I won't be looking back. And so we have all of this to celebrate. Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is not a funeral time. This is not a time for fasting. I'm walking with my disciples, and they're going to celebrate and experience the joy of being in my presence. But one of these days uh, when I go to that cross, and uh, three days later I'm going to conquer in the grave, and that will be a time to celebrate. And I'll be with them about 40 days, but then I'm going to go back to heaven, and they're going to have to get themselves ready for the next stage of the church. And so that will be a time when they will be fasting, but not now while I'm with them. That was his first example. His second example is given in verse 36. In fact, examples numbers 2 and 3 are packaged within a parable that starts in verse 36. But that first example within that parable, second example overall, is the patch job. The patch job. Now, I don't uh, presume to know a whole lot about the finer points of being a seamstress or even doing laundry. But even I know enough to know that if I buy a new shirt, that it's 100% cotton, it's a 100% cotton t-shirt, and that thing fits me perfectly, and I'm looking good. I'm walking in front of the mirror. I'm looking good. I see you right there. I see you. You know, I'm looking good. I'm wearing this shirt. Even I know enough to know that if that says on the little tag that it is not pre-shrunk, if I throw that bad boy in hot water, I'm going to put that shirt on the next time, and I'm going to be walking like this, and my daughters will not be seen in public with me. Sometimes they don't want to be seen in public with me even if the shirt fits, but let alone if it's way too tight. My sister gave me this shirt she picked up for, I think, two bucks somewhere, (laughs) and I washed that a few times. Uh, This is like the the cheapest T-shirt I've ever worn. I put that thing on, and it, like, hugs every single wrinkle and curve. And I and so I just walked out into the family room wearing that thing one day, and all my girls cringed. It was wonderful. It was a great dad moment. Anyway, we know enough to know you wash a 100% uh, cotton shirt in hot water, it ain't going to stay the same size. It's going to shrink. So Jesus gives this example. He says, hey, you go out and you say, shoot, I, I've got to fix this shirt of mine. I've had this shirt for five years. It's my favorite shirt. I love wearing it, but it's got this hole in it. You go out and buy a brand new unshrunk cotton T-shirt for 20 bucks, and you cut a patch out of that new shirt, and you sew that patch onto that hole in your T-shirt, and you wash it. Not only are you going to have a brand new $20 shirt with a big hole in it that's now useless to you. Notice I didn't use the illustration of blue jeans because holes in blue jeans, those are okay. But your T-shirt, you don't want that, right? And so you're going to have a ruined new shirt and your 
old shirt, as soon as that piece of fabric from the new one shrinks up, the rest of the shirt's not shrinking with it. You're going to have a ruined new shirt and a ruined old shirt. It ain't going to work. So Jesus says you just don't do that. The third example he gives is wine and wineskins. Wine and wineskins. Now, this one's a, a, a little bit more obscure for us because we don't do that in America these days. Let's put the photo up on the screen. So this shows uh, what a wineskin would be looking like in those days and even in certain uh, cultures today who still use them. So in Jesus' day, they, of course, didn't have plastic or glass bottles within which to store their liquids. And so their best bet for having something that would hold liquids without leaking was the skin of an animal. And their favorite to use, even today, goat skins. And so they would slaughter the goat, and they would carefully skin the goat, and then they would tie the ends that were open uh, in that skin so that they would have this container to hold whatever liquid. Now, how many of you would like to have a yummy refreshment fresh out of a goat skin? Mm-mm. Doesn't that look appetizing? Uh, no, thank you. I think I'll take my plastic or glass bottle. But that's the best they had. And so what happened is when you had a fresh goat skin, there's a certain amount of elasticity that God's given us in skin, right? But as that skin gets older and older, what happens? It dries out and it becomes more fragile. It'll crack more easily, it'll split, and it'll break more easily. So what happens is when you put grape juice into a new wine skin, during the fermentation process, that fermentation gives off a gas as a byproduct of that grape juice turning into wine. And as it gives off that gas, uh, you need a container that is able to expand as that gas is released. And so what happens is if you've got a dry, brittle, old wine skin and you put in grape juice and you allow that to sit up to ferment and become wine, what happens is as the expansion takes place, it'll completely crack out and break that old wine skin and it'll pour all over the ground and both will be ruined. So what you do is you put grape juice in a fresh wineskin so as it gives off the gas and expands, the elasticity in that fresh wineskin will be able to give as the wine gives. And so Jesus gives this example that they would have readily understood back then that you need to make sure you put new wine in old wineskins. Well, what is Jesus' point? Well, basically in this parable, examples two and three, uh, the example number two, remember, is the patch job. Example number three is the wine and the wineskins. Both are basically sharing the exact same message. The Pharisees and teachers of the law, over time, had become dry and stiff and had lost their elasticity. They didn't respond well to change. And when it comes to that patch illustration, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus saying, you know what, the law of Moses was wonderful and all, but our ancestors have added thousands of extra laws, the oral tradition to the Old Testament laws. And so, Jesus, if you want to help us make a few adjustments to Judaism, to make a few slight improvements to Judaism, if you want to help us put a new patch on the old garment of Judaism, we're up for helping you with that. But Jesus says, I'm not into patch jobs. I'm not here to patch up Judaism and just smooth out some rough edges of Judaism. I'm here to bring you something completely new. My new patch will not fit on your old garment. And my new wine will not fit in your old wineskins. And the Pharisees didn't like that at all. As you look at these, Jesus is basically saying, you religious leaders are comfortable in your tired old religion. 
You want me to lock arms with you and, and just put a few small patches on Judaism, making it a little bit better, but that's not going to happen. The new life of the Spirit cannot be sown onto old Judaism, and I can't be poured into old Judaism. I am giving you something fresh and new and life-changing. To you, the old ways seem good enough. To you, the old ways seem even better than what I'm offering you, but you are wrong. What I'm offering you is a brand new life of forgiveness, healing, and joy in the Lord. And that's why Jesus finishes this chapter in verse 39 by saying this, No one after drinking old wine wants the new for he says the old is better. I never really understood what Jesus was saying here. But in the context of those two illustrations of the new patch on the old garment and the new wine in the old wineskins, it makes complete sense to me now what he's saying in verse 39. He's saying to those Pharisees and teachers of the law, you guys have done Judaism your way for a very long time, and you're not about to change, are you? You're much more comfortable with your tired old religion than you are what I am sharing with you. You know what? The old is better. And how often do we as Christians do the same? I see changes being made in the church, and you know what? I prefer the old ways of doing things. I prefer the old ways of doing things. I prefer the old, uh, uh, the old uh, way of preaching. I prefer the old way of dressing. I prefer the old way of singing. I prefer the old way of doing this, that, or the other. And when it comes down to it, the fact remains that if we've been Christians for a long time, it's very easy to slide into the place of the Pharisees where we say, you know what, I'm just going to stick with the old because I'm not comfortable with the new. And sometimes when Jesus is doing something fresh and he is doing something new, when he is doing something transformational, it's not enough just to pick and choose what parts of that we like and patch them on our old religion. It doesn't work. And as I was thinking about First Christian Church this last week, I was encouraged that many of you in this church have walked away at some point in your life from tired old religion. A lot of people that have come to this church over the years have walked away from Catholicism. And you grew up Catholic. And you lifted up all the Hail Marys when you were supposed to. And you went to confession and you did everything that a good Catholic was supposed to do. But at some point you realize this is a tired old religion that is not connecting me with Jesus Christ. And if I'm not connected with Jesus Christ, I'm not connected to anything. And many of you have stepped away from Catholicism and said, you know what, I just want to study the word. I don't want to go through a priest to get to Jesus. I just want to have a relationship with Jesus. And praise God for those of you who have found new life and a new filling of the Holy Spirit as you've moved toward Christianity. Others have, not nearly as many in this church, but some have moved away from tired old Mormonism. We've had several that I've had the privilege of baptizing in this church that stepped away from Mormonism. I'll never forget Mildred. She passed away, I think, some 12, 13 years ago, but she came to me in her last year or two of life, and she says, I need to get baptized. And I asked her a question I oftentimes will ask someone that wants to get baptized. Well, have you ever been baptized before? She says, yeah, I was baptized in the Mormon church, but that was a cult. It doesn't count. I want to be baptized. How can I argue with that? And so we baptized Mildred, and what a blessing. I think she was 80 or so at the time to baptize that sweet old saint. What a blessing. What a blessing. I think a Carol is here with us today, and what a blessing. Stepped away from Mormonism after 30-plus years, I think it was. And what a blessing that you know she has found that tired old religion doesn't cut it. 
What she needs is a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. What a blessing. Others have stepped away from uh, just uh, a tradition of going to church every week just because you need to check the box and say, I did it this week. I fulfilled my my religious duty, and, and Christianity for you was just a religion. It wasn't a relationship. It was stale. It wasn't vibrant and fresh and exciting. And I'm so glad that many of you maybe didn't even change churches or change denominational affiliation. You just kind of woke up and started following Jesus Christ with life in it for the first time. What a blessing when we step away from the old and accept the new wine that Jesus Christ has for us in a walk with him. One last thought. Jesus doesn't do makeovers. He does new construction. Out with the old, in with the new, take it or leave it. That's Jesus' approach. If you come to Jesus with your old priorities and say, patch them up, Jesus is going to shake his head and say, nope, I'm not patching up your old priorities. You're going to have to scrap them, and I'm going to give you brand new priorities. If you come to him with tired old religion and say, patch it up, he's going to say, nope, I'm not into patch jobs. I'm into new construction. Take it or leave it. I strongly encourage you to take it. Father, we love you, and we thank you that our Lord Jesus Christ is so good at communicating such deep and powerful truths in such simple ways. And Lord, I don't know how many dozens upon dozens of times over the years I've read these verses, but Lord, you brought new life through those verses to my spirit this week. I thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to move away from patched jobs to move away from a mentality that we can squeeze you into our old molds, Lord. Help us to move away from that and accept the new wine that you have for us. New life, new peace, new purpose in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you're here today and you need to accept Christ, it's a great time to do that. I think we have two of our kids that are getting baptized in a few minutes. Pretty awesome. By the way, isn't it good having Jocelyn up in our praise team the last couple of weeks?